Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. All right, everyone, we are back after a long time away from all of you. It's been a busy uh, month for the both of us, but uh, happy to say that I'm your co-host, Spencer Rapone, joined here. Hey, it's Mike Preisner. Thanks for being patient with us, everyone. And we are back with another episode of uh, Eyes Left. Um, great to be here again. Mike, how you been? I've been all right, man. How about you? Pretty good. End of the semester, work's piling up. Uh, the world is still on fire, but we'll make it through somehow. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, I got some bad news for you with the end of your semester. I'm sure you're looking forward to doing some gaming, but the army is uh, trying to ruin that for us, too. I don't know if you heard. Indeed. Uh, you know, just when you think the most innocuous of activities and tasks are safe from the stupidity of the army, uh, it finds a way to extend its tentacles uh, even further. Um, of course, what Mike and I are referring to here is that the Army has a new plan uh, to recruit gamers. Mike, can you break that down a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, this is not really a new thing. I mean, for a long time, the Army has had um, video games adapt themselves for, like, Army training, for example. Like, as far back as Doom like the Marines had them change the monsters in Doom to like people and then they gave it to Marines to do training, which is just absurd because I don't know how playing that old Doom is going to help you uh, do anything combat wise. But uh, uh, and of course, you know, there is the America's Army video game, which was used as a recruiting tool for, for many, many years now. Um, which, you know, targets young people, like as young as like 11 years old. And the, the game itself is, is a recruiting tool. But there's a new tactic that they're going to be using to, to recruit gamers. And that is the starting of these like army esports teams where they're going to take uh, soldiers, active duty soldiers, and they're going to be forming esports teams for Tekken, League of Legends, Overwatch, Fortnite, Street Fighter, all of these things. And then so when there's gaming tournaments, uh, it has many facets, one of which is when there's gaming tournaments, um, you have soldiers who are there like in uniform as part of the army esports teams that can interact with people at the tournament. So basically turning them into recruiters at these different video game events. Uh, another facet of this is that they have these two like 18 wheeler trailers that they've decked out as like gaming centers that, that are all like camouflage and all that. And they're going to drive them around and people can come and play video games with soldiers, professional gamer soldiers uh, around the country. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about yeah, that? No, I mean, the, uh, the phrase professional gamer soldier is certainly something <laughs> worth pondering. Uh, you know, just reading about this and um, uh, the recruiter who is kind of the uh, the subject of inquiry for this piece, uh, the staff sergeant, uh, Ryan uh, Moe, it, it was just, it was honestly quite depressing and, and sad hearing him talk about his military experiences <laughs> through the lens of gaming almost. I mean, of course we all carry different weight with us when it comes to our time in the military, but 
I mean, some of his anecdotes, like about being in uh, uh, overseas um, on a fob somewhere and he- overhearing a guy talking about World of Warcraft and forming ca- a connection that way. Uh, and then, you know, just to see the um, the just the opulence of what this gaming truck is going to look like with all the different consoles and then even like the artwork on it, it's it's really disconcerting. Um and for me, it's, uh, you know, a, a lot of the uh, the panicky nonsense from like the 90s and early 2000s about video mm-hmm. games like Mortal Kombat is, is nonsense, of course, from the, uh, you know, conservatives. But I do think it's worth examining or grappling with the rise of proliferation of first person shooter games mm-hmm. that coincided uh, with, you know, the Forever War, the post 9-11 era. And... It's always been both fascinating and unsettling to me how popular those games are. Of course, not just among the youth, but active duty soldiers themselves. Um, even when I was overseas, uh, man in garrison, uh, a lot of my buddies, uh, they couldn't wait uh, you know, to get back to their rooms and start playing whatever FPS was popular uh, at the time. And it's interesting because, again... You don't want to always, you know, of course, you know, uh, correlation does not equal causation. We all know that. But I do think that there is something to be said about a certain type of psychological priming uh, that happens uh, with just the uh, desensitization of violence, particularly uh, in first person shooter games. And also, like you said, you know, the example of the Marines with Doom Mm-hmm. Uh, is interesting because, of course, Doom, you're, you're shooting demonic you know, creatures, and you said they tried to change them to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, the article notes that, um, you know, in current games, you know, a lot of times it's zombies or what have you. Uh, but that, for me, ties directly into uh, the dehumanization process that's part and parcel of military training so that you can become an effective combat soldier so that you could become an effective uh, killer. So even uh, if the games try to uh, give you an antagonistic force that you're shooting that isn't completely human as you recognize it, I mean, it really doesn't matter. You're still going through the act uh, there. And, and of course, again, this isn't to say that a lot of the, uh, the panic associated with video games is valid. What's worth looking at, I think, is the, the correlation between the rise of first-person shooters um, and the psychological priming that might be taking place there because I think it's kind of pretty well known now that the military, as you have said, since going back to America's Army and before, has a very heavy stake uh, in what video games are put out there and how they could tie up recruiting efforts with them. But this is a more, I guess, uh, contemporary form of that phenomenon. Yeah, um, you know, full disclosure here, I love video games. I, I'm of the age where I, uh, when I was a, a little kid, we had an Atari. And so I grew up with every <laughs> consecutive game console after that, from Nintendo all the way to now PS4 and a Switch. Um, but I, always, I started finding it really weird when video games started to actually, first-person shooters in particular, uh, begin to mirror actual wars. I mean, I remember in the early, it never was like that before. And then in the early 2000s, we had like the Battlefield games, which were like the World War II yeah. based games. And even then it was a little strange because 
you know, you're playing a World War II game as if it's this like fun fantasy. And then I always pictured someone who is like actually in combat in World War II seeing me playing it and being like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like that was not a good time. Um, but then in, in this era, we have act games that take place like in Iraq and Afghanistan, all the Call of Duties. Um, I was actually really disappointed to see that the new Metal Gear Solid, which is a great game and a great history of games, it like takes place in Afghanistan and in Africa as like a special right. operations guy. Because it's like, you know, uh, games don't need to be based on actual reality, especially reality that is like destroying and killing people's lives, both the people who are the combatants and and, and non-combatants. Um, you know, so it just, it's like a very weird thing. I mean, it's like, you don't, you don't need to. I mean, that's why games are, are cool that create like, you could have a first person shooter on like a fantasy battlefield, you know, games like Halo and Overwatch. I mean, yeah. they're, they're not real. I mean, you're there. So there, there is that like level of violence there, but it's not like an actual war that's going on now. And especially when people like starting these games are like young kids who are playing. So it's very bizarre that you got a kid who's like seven years old, playing a combat game in Afghanistan and then in, up until, you know, he's old enough to join and then he actually goes to Afghanistan uh, and is in combat. And that's kind of the other side to these uh, these games. You know, I, I met someone um, when I was at Fort Lewis working with soldiers who had PTSD and weren't getting proper treatment from the military. Uh, one of the soldiers I met was one of these guys who joined the army because he was really into these first-person shooters. And so as soon as he turned old enough, he joined the infantry. Then he got sent to Iraq a couple times at, during the one of the worst times to go there. And then he was telling me, he's like, yeah, I used to love to play video games, but I cannot play video games anymore because it's too much of a, a triggering uh, experience. And so this he joined because he loved video games and it kind of he, he fell for the, the kind of America's army uh, gaming tactics and all that stuff. Now he can never play video games again because he actually went and did uh, in real life what he was doing in, in a, a fantasy mode uh, in the game. So, you know, it's uh, has kind of really bad consequences. Yeah, I've been kind of grappling with um, this, I guess, this thesis of mine. I've had that the the more immersive uh, first person shooters um, are the ones that have kind of more readily tied in with the military industrial complex. Uh, you kind of got at this, but for me, there was almost like a, um, particularly with like 16 bit video games, mm -hmm. um, full disclosure, uh, I'm a huge fan of Sonic the Hedgehog, particularly oh, yeah. the classic, <laughs> uh, which I think, you know, I could spend an hour here talking about how Sonic has a particularly socialist or anti imperialist subtext, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, I think there's a distance with. Uh, fantastical games or whimsical games like Mario, Sonic, or even um, something like uh, Metal Slug, the earlier Metal Gear or Metal Gear Solid games, uh, there's something to be said about how you suspend your disbelief. And we could talk about the merits of escapism, but the point of those games is that you're doing something that really isn't replicable uh, right. in real life. Now, it seems... The past 15, 20 years, the, in, in terms of what's most popular, what's selling the most, it's been about immersion. It's been about what's realistic. You see some of this in film, uh, too, in certain mm -hmm. uh, genres. But it is fascinating to me uh, when a soldier who could be you know, deployed in any number of combat zones at this point, in particular Iraq or Afghanistan, how they could go out on a mission carrying a rifle, this and that. And then when they're winding down, they come back uh, to the FOB 
they go to the room and then they start playing a video game where they're essentially replicating what they just did mm-hmm. in real life. There's never an end uh, to what you're doing. Um, much like how certain types of entertainment uh, replicates uh, the workplace at home, so too do these video games replicate uh, your uh, military tax- tasks in, um, in a digital form. Yeah, and you know there, the, that's funny because the article that um, that explains this new tactic of like recruiting gamers and like the the guy who had the idea, who was a recruiter, you know, mind you, so like his job is to come up with ways to recruit uh, young people. You know, he he thinks he had this epiphany, like, oh, I realized in the army that so many people were into gaming, and all people wanted to do was get back to their barracks and start gaming, whether it's deployment or back home or whatever. And it was like, oh, I realized that people who are gamers just joined the military. And then, and that, so it made me realize that we should try to recruit gamers into the military. I think it's kind of a spurious correlation he's making there. I mean, gaming also, it, there's, it has a lot to do with addiction and kind of an alternative to like Absolutely. doing substances. I mean, this is why like the World Health Organization is, is, uh, uh, trying to get a gaming actually an official addiction. I know that South Korea actually just recognized it as an official addiction and is providing government services for people who are addicted to gaming. But, you know, so many of these games, especially the first person shooters, I mean, games like you mentioned, like Sonic, the Mario Odyssey games, like, you know, like there's there's certain games, especially like, um, I mean, I think Nintendo in particular, the games are geared towards like a gaming experience where you play through a game and then you beat the game and you're like, wow, that's a great experience. But yeah, so many yeah. of these other games, especially the first person shooters, Call of Duty, Battlefield, Overwatch, Fortnite. It's just kind of this endless repetitive cycle and you play it in just way to shut off and you can play it for like eight hours and not even have any memory of what you just did. You just are turning your brain off and going through this repetitive over and over again cycle where there's really no reward, no conclusion, nothing at all. And so it, it's, I think that the reason gaming is so popular in the military is because being in the military sucks <laughs> and you can't do drugs. So might as well just flip on the PlayStation 4 for like eight hours or your entire weekend. Um, and so I think that, you know, <laughs> there's that side to it. That's why it's so incredibly uh, popular in the military. So if anything, it speaks to why you shouldn't join the military. The fact that so many people are like spending all of their off time glued to a television set uh, playing these things. Yeah, I'm. I mean, uh, in terms of addiction, now uh, there is legitimately uh, Fortnite addiction happening right now uh, with mm. kids. A, a certain behavioral specialist, um, you can read this article on uh, NME, compared Fortnite to a heroin addiction. Now it's quite a leap, but I think the point is, as you said, this repetitive, uh, endless nature to it, um, it is really. Uh, the rub, whether it's Fortnite, which of course Fortnite is a, a third-person perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but the same mechanisms in terms of uh, the game never ends. There's never an actual plot necessarily or a through line uh, to the game. Like you said, there really isn't a beginning or end. Uh, so whether it's Fortnite or some of the Battlefield games, which even if there's a campaign mode. That's really not what people are spending the endless hours are. It's the online multiplayer. Mm-hmm. And so it also speaks, of course, to the very lonely and atomistic times we live in. I mean, we are so hyper-individualized oh, yeah. that video games and video games of this nature uh, particularly are quite popular because it's the the perfect addition 
to a life that already is alienated, to a life that already is quite divorced from any genuine human connection. So then when we tie it into the military, the military, even though they'll sell you some notions of camaraderie, which are true in some sense, most of those feelings of camaraderie are built on going through traumatic experiences together, whether in training or in combat. And so at the end of the day, when you're left alone with your thoughts, you're still going to have to grapple with how atomized and alienated you are. And so to then find uh, some high in video games, uh, whether they're first-person shooter or what have you, for me is kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, that is how the uh, the superstructural elements right now are functioning. And it's worth, I think, grappling with this new stage of uh, military recruitment in video games, <clears throat> taking things to uh, another level of um, military involvement with the video game industry. Uh, America's Army is one thing, the Doom thing before, but to actually do Twitch streams now... Um, where a recruiter will play a game and you could ask them questions digitally so that... Yeah, that's you know, another crazy are, part of yeah. this. It's like a partnership with Twitch, which is, if people don't know, is like a streaming service for gamers. Like you can stream yourself playing games, you can join people on Twitch. So it's like, it's, it's extremely popular. It's like the biggest platform for, for gaming streaming. So yeah, it's go, so go ahead. You can like watch Twitch. It's going to be a recruiter doing the Twitch game. People are going to be, the army is going to be paying soldiers to play video games on Twitch just so kids watching can ask them questions about the army while they're watching them play this game. And it, it's again, it's, it's quite bizarre uh, because uh, it was framed as like, you know, you don't have to go through the, the awkward or intimate experience of a recruiter's office. Now <laughs> you could just ask questions from behind your screen. And, you know, this recruiter is your friend. He's your bro. Uh, and and then uh, the recruiter who was being interviewed um, uh, in the piece on this in uh, Kotaku uh, said something to the effect of like, you know, the army is comprised of many different people in many different roles. This will allow me to connect with others and, and show them what they do. And, and again, it's just like it's very, very sad uh, to see someone's life reduced to this engagement <laughs> with uh, a, a completely digital false world. Um, but again, I mean, this is just one aspect of a a hyper normalized process we've been living through for the past twenty, nearly thirty years. So it, things so are coming weird. to a head. It's so weird. It's just like a new way to like infiltrate people's lives. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. recruiters have a hard time getting into you know students' phone numbers at high schools and things like that. There's like different ways that they're restricted from getting full access, even though they they find find ways to circumvent it a lot. Now they're just getting in the the living rooms of kids like over the phone without their without their parents' consent. Um, who knows how old these kids are? I mean, you know, it, it's the idea that they're going to ask, like, oh, are you uh, 17 years old? Are you too young for me to be talking to you? Like, I, I watch, like, the Army's, like, social media accounts and everything. Like, when there's young kids that reply to them, like, yeah. you know, kids are like, I'm only 13, but I want to be in the Army. Like, they reply and say, oh, you're almost there. Keep, keep in touch with us. Like, they're very actively grooming young people yeah. to go in. And obviously, they're going to be doing that with this. So I think it brings in all kinds of ethical questions. It's actually illegal in the United States to be targeting kids who recruitment that are like younger than 
um, I'm 17 or, or 16 years old. And so right. I doubt that there's going to be any kind of monitoring to make sure they're not doing this with kids. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that they, they're bringing out this plan because there is a major recruiting shortfall right now in the army. In fact, the it's there is like 7,000 soldier recruits short of their recruiting goals, um, which is actually pretty big because the last time there was this much of recruiting shortfall was during the height of the Iraq war, which was like a record low uh, recruiting. And so the fact that now people joining the military at, at levels during the height of the Iraq war is pretty, pretty significant. And so this is just, you know, one of their ways to try to combat this major recruiting shortfall is to take advantage of kids playing video games on Twitch and convincing them to join the, the military uh, through that. So it's a little bizarre. And, and But it, the thing is, too, is that it's effective. I mean, the game yes. America's Army that we mentioned before, um, the army dedicated like over 30% of its entire marketing budget to this video game. It was like an $8 million project into this game. And they uh, did a study in 2008, MIT did a study that said the game America's Army had positively influenced 30% of young civilians' views on the army. That's a pretty big chunk of people it turns from ind being indifferent or not liking the army into liking the army. Uh, and in fact, in 20% uh, of incoming West Point trainees had played the game and said that they liked it and that it helped inform their, their views on the army. So this is a strategy that's, that's tried and true for the army. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's effective is, is the key point here because we could, um, you know, everyone laughs about there was those uh, series of Marine recruitment ads from the 90s that were like these fantasy uh, encounters where like a Marine has to fight some lava monster and then gets a sword. Yeah. And then, <laughs> the big then, chessboard. Like, yeah, yeah, and then the, like the, the dress uniform materializes around him. Um and so clearly they're trying to tap into some Dungeons and Dragons-esque aesthetic or something along those lines. Um, but I mean, those were mostly seen as a joke. Um, I'm sure some people were swayed by that, but mostly they were kind of like, what the hell is this? But with the particular uh, technological advancements and the prevalence of video games right now in popular culture, uh, first-person shooters especially, it's extremely uh, effective. And I think the uh, the prevalence of so many soldiers who adore video games of this type is um, testament to that. Again, the the author behind the main piece we're referring to, uh, Cecilia D'Anastasio, I, I think uh, there's so many aspects of her piece where she even talks about how she was getting swept up in the rhetoric of uh, talking to this army recruiter who was this huge gamer. Oh yeah. And of course, if you're, you know, if you're a journalist, uh, someone who's, who's, you know, equipped to deal with uh, this type of situation, imagine then how a young impressionable mind uh, is, is going to be shaped uh, by this type of engagement and encounter. Yeah, and you know? you know the really, the really tragic end to this. I mean, despite the fact that you know the the gaming is trying to dehumanize people you're shooting. And then so the people that actually end up on the receiving end of the actual bullets, it's, it's quite a tragedy for them, this type of tactic. But I think a, a real tragic end to this strategy is that, as you know, I'm, I don't know if you ever encountered this, Spencer, but one of the ways that the army tried to combat the suicide epidemic in the army and, and the, the real crisis of PTSD and their inability to treat it is that they 
uh, ended up spending, you know, many millions of dollars on this thing that some defense contractor made, which was a video game to treat PTSD, which is like a virtual reality experience mm. where if you had PTSD from combat experience, you played this video game over and over again where you were back in Iraq and it was supposed to condition you to not have a, a really bad responses to the combat you were a part of because now you're desensitizing yourself with this video game. And so it's kind of ironic that they could be using video games to get people in the army to go to combat and then have to use this other video game to treat them for their combat trauma uh, after they've, they've uh, you know, served their role for the recruiters. Yeah, and it brings to question um, larger implications of technology. Um, one, one of the classes I've been taking this semester has been examining the writings of the various critical theory thinkers, Adorno, Horkheimer, Benjamin, Marcuse, and such. And, and one of the ongoing debates is if technology is just neutral, if it's just a series of tools at our disposal that we could use, and then depending on the political forces that are employing them, you know, whether they'll be for, you know, the benefit of many or few. And, and it's tough because I think it depends. I think there are a lot of uh, technological advancements uh, that are that way that, you know, can be used to good or bad. But then you do wonder if there are certain types of technological advancements or features or, and, you know, within the context of our current discussion, if there are certain types of video games that are inherently atomizing, uh, dehumanizing and alienating. And if there really isn't an aspect of them that's salvageable and how their use for military recruitment and expanding the military industrial complex is almost like their uh, logical conclusion. You know, even outside of critical theory, uh, you know, the Canadian theorist Marshall McLuhan had that off-repeated phrase which, phrase, which has kind of become a cliche by now called, the medium is the message. But I think there's something to be said about that. Uh, when you see how ensnared uh, certain types of video games have been with the military for quite a long time now. Yeah, and the the final thing that I I'll I'll say about this is that th I feel like there's this other angle to this that's kind of more concealed, and that's the fact that you know one of the quotes from the uh, the staff sergeant who is is leading this project, he says um, it'll help young people see soldiers in a different light and understand the many different roles people can have in the army. Now, what he's referring to there as different roles is the role of being on the army professional e gaming team. So mm -hmm. they want to they want to tell young people going to military that you can join the army and then be a part of the esports team and your full time job is going to be to play video games professionally for the army. I mean, it's the same thing as the army has the army band, the army sports teams and, and all of these different types of professional teams that are in the army, which, of course, there are people on these teams, but it's a very, very small number. And the purpose of these is to get people to join the army thinking they could be on these teams. Now, I went when I was in basic training, there is about five black soldiers in my platoon that all thought that they were on the army basketball team. They were not on the army basketball team. So when the drill sergeants are going around and asking what everyone's job was, they were saying they're on the army basketball team. And drill sergeants are like, you're not on the fucking army basketball team. You're a forward observer. And they didn't know. They really thought that yeah. they were joining because they, they were recruited at a basketball game. Some recruiter was there. It's like, your, your skills are really good at basketball. Why don't you join the army and get on the army basketball team? And they all thought they had done it. Same thing with the, uh, you know, with like the army band, like, or the bands that you have to try out for. I mean, they get people in in other MOSs and then say, of course you can try out for this thing. You're, so I feel like they're going to be going to these gaming tournaments as recruiters with the recruiter team, find kids that are like good at video games 
which they've done in the past. I, I know they sponsored Halo tournaments in the past. They go to kids who are playing games they're like, damn, you're really good at that video game. We can use your skills in the army. And guess what? Now you can actually be on the official army gaming team. And so who knows how many kids are going to get swept up in this thinking they're going to be on the esports team, but they're going to end up you know, some kind of frontline fighter or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure in like 20 years from now, we'll get a uh, Zero Dark Thirty-esque film about uh, the Army gaming team, the Army esports team, and their triumphant efforts uh, in this era. And, and at that moment, that's when everything in our current reality will be more parody uh, than real life. But hey. Yeah, <laughs> getting there. Well, before we move on from this topic, Spencer, I got to hear your rundown of, of Sonic since we are a socialist podcast after. Yeah. No, okay. This is something um, I've thought about for a while. And there's this great uh, video on uh, YouTube by H bomber guy, which kind of gets at this about how Sonic is a being who's more or less one of the few surviving members of his race. And he's uh, waging a revolutionary struggle against Dr. Robotnik or Dr. Eggman, who's literally trying to take all of the life forms on um, uh, the islands that Sonic inhabits, whether it's South Island, Adrian Island, later, whatever the case. But he's trying to take all the life forms, all the animals, and extract their labor power from them by literally installing them into his robotic devices. And as each game progresses, it goes from a more natural, free-flowing environment to something more mechanical uh, and more uh, grotesque. And for me, you know, as a young kid, thinking about this now, it's interesting to me how a game where you play a character who's essentially liberating uh, other animals, and of course, this is analysis uh, from me, it's analysis from H. Bomber Guy, but it's so vastly different from what... Uh, video games are most proliferated in mass society uh, now uh, in in terms of uh, its relation to uh, uh, the war machine. But anyway, uh, at the end of the day, I think Sonic represents uh, a very compelling example of how even something that's created by some mass corporate entity, you could grapple with uh, what it actually means and and derive your own uh, understanding of it in a way that you know, obviously it's not going to translate to anything too substantial in terms of political action, but there's at least something there that you can interpret and have fun with. Whereas I think a lot of the mass-produced uh, games, particularly first-person shooters, don't really give you uh, any opportunity to uh, to grapple with sub- uh, subtext, to look into it uh, more deeply. And it's really just a, a um, an algorithmically generated process that gets you to play more uh and that's about it there's not very much color to it uh there's not very much story to it uh it's just a never-ending process which perpetuates itself and hopes that you continue to play it and again i could again i don't want to take up too much time but we could have a very long conversation about why 16-bit games and sonic in particular do have something of a socialist subtext to them. Right. And when you're when you're looking at yourself in uniform and trying to trying to really analyze your role in the world, it's you can't help but realize you're 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 fighting for Dr. Robotnik. You're not fighting for Sonic. You are. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely the point. Or again, I mean the obvious one is that if you're playing um like, I don't know, Nazi zombies in Call of Duty or whatever, it's like, well buddy, 
<laughs> if you look at your daily life, it's pretty zombified. And when you look at uh, the politics of the military you're serving, there's a lot of um, fascistic elements there. So, <laughs> Well, I'm embarrassed to admit I could talk about games all day, but <laughs> yeah, same. I think we should move on to uh, other stories, which are uh, our Navy SEALs are getting themselves in trouble. Actually, a few different Navy SEALs have been getting themselves in trouble uh, last month. Yeah. The first being that two Navy SEALs and two Marine Raiders, which is a Marine Special Operations, uh, four of them are all being charged uh, in the murder of a Special Operations Staff Sergeant, um, which occurred at their... Uh, they were running like anti-Al-Qaeda operations from like a safe house in Mali. And apparently you know, there is a bit of corruption going on on behalf of the SEALs and the Raiders, meaning that um, they were stealing quite a bit of cash. I mean, uh, I don't know if you ever dealt with this, Spencer, but were you ever given like large sums of cash to be going and pay people off and stuff like that? So I, um, as a lower enlisted, of course, I personally was not, but I remember my team leader like explaining to me how um, our squad leader, who was the weapon squad leader, but since he was one of the senior NCOs, he directly worked with the um, the APU, the Afghan Partnering Unit, so kind of like their version of a special operations type outfit. But he was given uh, like a certain sum uh, of money in order to bargain with, uh, you know, whether you encounter a particularly influential village leader of some sort. Uh, but none of that, that does go on. Um, it went on in my unit where that type of bargaining and negotiation isn't as prevalent. But e even in a, a unit that focuses on direct action, such as the Rangers, that went on. It very much happens with other echelons of special operations, such as uh, special forces, um, civil affairs, uh, and so on. Yeah, and and I know for a fact that uh, a lot of people kind of put put away some retirement funds based on this cash. I mean, oh, yeah. we're looking at, especially in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, I mean, where there's really no oversight or accountability. People may not realize that some of these like cargo planes going into Iraq contained pallets of just cash, like pallets of like, it'd be like a bank vault, but like millions and millions of dollars in straight US dollars. Um, so then you give them to a special forces squad, they stick it in their backpack and they're supposed to go out and, you know, pay uh, different, you know, leaders and things like that. But of course, the the temptation of just taking it for yourself is, is quite high. Um, and so we know for a fact that that happened to a large degree. But in this case that we're talking about, these SEALs that were uh, taking the money, there was this Staff Sergeant Logan Melgar, who seems like he was a really straight-laced guy. He, um, he didn't drink. Uh, he was, um, you know, really mad about the fact that they're stealing all this money. But not only that, apparently the safe house by the SEALs were being run like a frat house, it was said in, in court documents, where they were mm -hmm. constantly bringing back prostitutes to the house, all of this stuff. So this guy, Staff Sergeant Melgar, was like, man, I'm, I'm supposed to be here on this like high-speed secret operation, and the house is just full of prostitutes. They're all stealing money. They're drunk all the time, all this stuff. So he seemed like he was uh, mad about it. And you know, the quote from one of the lawyers is that there is an ongoing disagreement over the SEALs' professionalism. And so they solved it in a pretty unprofessional way. It's interesting, um, you know, before we go into the more sordid de details of this, you know, Melgar, what he's grappling with, I think speaks to a lot of the, uh, the moral complexities of being a soldier. Uh, of course, like in terms of your relation to power and what you're doing, you're of course completely mm -hmm. um, immoral. But th that tension there between... You know, this is a guy, comparatively speaking, who's trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But even 
in uh, trying to do that, uh, of course, he was murdered by um, his supposed comrades uh, in arms because he didn't want to perpetuate the cycle of unethical behaviors. I, I mean, the Marine Raiders, uh, these special operations guys, what they did to him, I mean, it's abominable. Uh, of course, we don't know the full details yet, but the charges say that the they drove to the Marine quarters in uh, Bamako, Mali. They got duct tape. Uh, they went to the shared Army-Navy headquarters, and then they entered his bedroom, broke through his door, and restrained him with the duct tape. And essentially strangled him uh, by putting him in a chokehold. And what's eerie about that to me is that same process is normally done in a um, in an almost playful manner regularly in, in units like this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, every time someone had a birthday, or you know, if you know the junior NCOs wanted to fuck around, even the senior NCOs, uh, you know, this would happen all the time. Uh, among uh, the enlisted soldiers, you know, you hog tie someone, you pink belly them, you do some other hazing bullshit. And, and again, it, it's there's something to be said about how that normalization, it's almost like, well, of course, it eventually leads to that exact same sequence of actions being replicated in actually killing someone uh, in cold blood uh, like this. Although I did actually, I, I wanted to ask you, Spencer, though, having been in special operations, it's um, we're, we're going to get into this other story of this other Navy SEAL who's sitting in jail with these other ones. What was your, uh, what was in your unit, what was your opinion of the Navy SEALs? Because I, I remember that uh, all the special ops people that I was in contact with, they kind of all talked about the SEALs like they were like the bastards of the special operations oh, community. Yes. <laughs> I don't yeah, know if they had I, that reputation with you guys as well, but it indeed. seemed like they, were, they, always, they used excessive amounts of violence and killing to make up for their reputation of being very incompetent and, and bad and kind of like the, the, as yeah. I said, like the losers of the special ops community. Yeah, there's something of that. Um, you know, when we first got over there, I, you know, I deployed, I got there in July of 2011. This was um, a couple of months after the infamous bin Laden raid, which was, of course, carried out by SEAL Team 6, and they were bragging about it and so on and so forth. But Which were the people who murdered this guy. They're, they're SEAL Team 6. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, no, when I got there, uh, all the time, you would hear these, these underhanded remarks by some of my uh, fellow Rangers talking about how the SEALs were completely unprofessional, you know, you'd hear anecdotes about how they would leave weapons or other sensitive materials um, on the site uh, of an engagement um, or on the battlefield in general, um, how they actually were all hype. And, you know, they're seen as the, the Hollywood of um, special operations, whereas the Rangers and SF and so on were seen as the so-called uh, silent professionals. But in terms of the... Um, them using excessive force that a critique from that angle really didn't come come up too much it was more that the that the seals weren't as professional or efficient right at uh killing and capturing uh as opposed to you know the rangers so it was more kind of uh that line uh of thinking right you know which is you know abominable in its own right but right well it seems that maybe this uh this other guy we're going to talk about, Chief Warrant Officer Edward Gallagher, may have been trying to overcompensate or was just a sadistic uh, guy. Seems like it was the latter, that he was just kind of a, a, a sociopath. But this guy is, um, right now he's in jail awaiting 
trial for war crimes for some pretty gruesome stuff. I mean, this guy, it was in the SEALs as well, been on about eight deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but it was his most recent deployment to Iraq and part of um, anti-Islamic state uh, actions where he was uh, found to be com committing some pretty heinous stuff and is now facing trial for it. You know, it's, it's interesting because the, the New York Times article about this guy, it, it can't, it, it's so funny how like, obsessed with military culture and worship that the U.S. culture is, is that even in the article that's talking about what this Navy SEAL did, which we'll get into, which is pretty disgusting, but just to preface it, the New York Times article about this guy is almost like filled with like praise of him at the same time. It said he was something special, even with like the high standards of the Navy SEALs. He was just like this star soldier. He was a life-saving medic and a crack sniper. And I'm like, how does this uh, New York Times journalist know that he's a crack sniper? I mean, because he yeah. shot people with a sniper rifle? So it's actually mm -hmm. kind of like showered, showering him with praise and like, oh, he was a lifesaver or whatever. Like, you don't know that. Like, if you're like, I was a lifesaver too. I went to combat lifesaver school. So I was like a lifesaving right, yeah. medic, like technically. But what this well, guy it really shows you how these terms divorced from their context can seem much more grandiose than they actually are. Exactly. Um, and, and then it, you get all these nice words about him and then it goes on uh, to show what he did. And, and, the fa and so on this last deployment to Iraq, and I am sure that he conducted himself this way on, on his other deployments, but on this recent deployment to Iraq, he was opening fire on civilians on a very regular basis. I mean, he was uh, the head of a, a SEAL platoon. His fellow SEAL said that he used his sniper rifle 10 times more than anyone else and that he was uh, but he wasn't firing at combatants. Um, they recall him uh, shooting and killing an old man carrying a, a water jug. Uh, they recall him shooting and killing a young girl who was just uh, walking by the bank uh, of a river. And this also unintentionally reveals a lot about the actual role that U.S. troops are playing in Iraq right now. Of course, we're told that they're just doing uh, support operations or not in direct combat. They're just kind of rear echelon support. And the special forces troops that are there are just doing these so-called advise and assist roles for Iraqi forces. But somehow this guy is out there killing civilians every day. So I think it tells us something that we didn't actually know before about how much U.S. troops are actually in combat and uh, what those who are actually doing rear support, what they are actually supporting by doing that rear support. But the thing that really got him busted wasn't just this kind of just constant killing of, of innocent civilians, for which he could, uh, apparently was still allowed to do, was that there was this incident where they had a teenage detainee. Now, this is a teenage wounded detainee. Now, they say he was an ISIS fighter and he was wounded during ISIS fighting, but that is not known at all. And we know that ISIS actually also forces young teenagers uh, to take part in fighting when they're, so it's actually through no choice of their own. Uh, this person was believed to be between the ages of 12 and 17. And so it's possible that this kid was actually 12 years old and he was wounded. He had a collapsed lung from an airstrike. And so he was evacuated back to the SEAL position for medical treatment as is required by Geneva Convention. But this is a kid, right? I mean, whether or not he was an ISIS, whether or not he was willingly an ISIS, this is a, a kid who is a wounded and dying person. And so while they're giving him treatment for his collapsed lung, this uh, chief warrant officer Gallagher comes up, who is the life-saving medic, right? Comes up with a hunting knife and starts stabbing the kid in the neck. So he murders the kid in front of everyone. Um, and then 
Uh, he does his re-enlistment ceremony with the kid's body. So he has the other SEALs hold up the American flag. He stands and poses for a picture holding up the body of this kid that he just murdered with a knife. And that's how he re-enlisted in the SEALs. So he's now on trial for war crimes, for murder of, of this kid and the other civilians that he shot. There's lots of testimony from other SEALs. Uh, corroborating this story. Um, interestingly enough, the other people that took part in this aren't on trial, just just this one guy. But um, kind of one of the more gruesome things that that I've read about in a while regarding uh, special ops. Yeah, this um, the reenlistment ceremony, which is a very ritualistic aspect, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to special operations uh, personnel uh, deciding to re-up. It's just always, from what I have observed back when I was in and now, there seems to be this particularly sadomasochistic uh, aspect to it, as well as um, just just the inherent violence of it all. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times guys will brag about having done a reenlistment ceremony in the tear gas chambers, you know, trying to recite the oaths of enlistment while you're choking and everyone else is... <laughs> Hating their lives, you know. There's countless stories of that, um, of that type, but this one certainly takes things to a whole other level. It is very unsettling when even other seals in the same unit as this sociopath are deciding to call him out and come forward because, again, a lot of these communities like to remain quite insular. And not uh, speak out. Uh, but the fact that someone who had this much, you know, um, legitimacy and standing, the fact that he's potentially having to face the music is very interesting to me. Of course, I say potentially uh, because his defense lawyer argues that uh, these types of pictures are not unique uh, and they've been in every Iraq case I've ever done. Yeah, so, right, right. That was a pretty crazy admission from him. He's like, I've seen this a million times. What's the big deal? Yeah. Um, the Intercept dropped an article in um, January 2017, I believe, that talked about the phenomenon of canoeing um, enemy combatants' faces. Uh, that was very popular uh, within the SEALs. Of course, what is what that? that means? Uh, what, what that means is essentially shooting someone in the face so that it collapses and looks like a canoe as in hollowed out um, and kind of curved around. It's mm. exceptionally brutal and just downright abominable and, and another uh, insanely violent fetish uh, that a lot of these uh, types have. This particular figure getting called out on this, it'll be interesting to see where it goes because... What Gallagher is doing is by no means exceptional. The fact that his other, the other SEAL person on his unit are calling him forward speaks to, on one hand, yes, he, he's even more violent than the rest of them. But to me, it almost seems like someone who's that blatant and that uncouth and um, not right. as efficient, again, is almost bringing a bad name to them so that they can't continue uh, carrying out actions of this nature. Now, I mean, keep in mind that part of the special operations mentality is that you look down upon uh, the, the the regular personnel. You look down upon the so-called big army, or in this case, uh, the big navy. So someone like Gallagher is bringing discredit to a unit that normally likes to operate 
in the so-called shadows with uh, outside of the purview of um, international law uh, and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, um, you know, the, the law is never any metric uh, for morality and, and, and especially when it comes to having figures like this uh, face justice. I mean, it would be good to see Gallagher have to answer for his crimes and the, the violence he's wrought upon plenty of human beings, many of which, have, most of which, if not all of them, have been innocent. And I mean, to be honest, the question of innocence really is irrelevant when it comes to an occupying force, because that's presuming that some people aren't innocent, which is another type of moral calculus I reject, uh, because there's no legitimacy to an imperialist occupying force. Um, so, it, you know, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those examples where you get a glimpse of the the hyper masculine and hyper violent culture of special operations. Uh, I just, you know, going forward, we need to all keep in mind that this is a a systemic uh, quality uh, to these types of organizations. And Gallagher is by no means an exception, even if he is a particularly brutal figure himself. That's right. And and while that's true that there are seals that are. A, a part of his prosecution, people that will be witnesses to testify that he did indeed murder civilians and all of this stuff. Uh, his defense lawyer has said, oh, trust me, there are plenty of SEALs who are going to come forward and say this never happened. So even yeah. while, you know, some, a section have recognized that we can't have this guy blowing up our spot like this, this was uh, maybe, and, and many probably who feel that it was actually morally reprehensible. There's, there's just as many, if not more SEALs who are going to go in there and just lie to save this guy because they see nothing wrong with it because, uh, you know, doesn't matter if he killed a young girl walking walking to get water. They're they're all terrorists over there, and so who cares if he killed one? He, he killed him before we we had to fight him. I think that's a, a mentality that that a lot of them have. Yeah, I I do think it is interesting. Uh, this aspect of it though uh, is that members of his platoon, and these are subordinates of his, right? Because yeah. he was killing so many civilians, um, that members of his platoon tampered with his sniper rifle. So it was not as accurate. Uh, yeah. And they yeah. also would do things like if there was a civilian, they thought he was going to kill someone, they'd start firing warning shots so civilians would scatter. So it was harder for him uh, to shoot people. It shows that like his kind of, um, his murderousness was like so well known and expected that some yeah. lower ranking members of his platoon took some individual action to try to stop it from happening. Um, showing that some were still grossed out by it. Not enough to reported or anything like that. But the fact that they like changed the sights on his rifle, I mean, um, and no, some of them, it's worth noting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it, some of them said that they were spending more time, uh, protecting civilians from him than they were protecting themselves from ISIS, which is, uh, just kind of an interesting little side note to this whole thing. No, no, I, I think that is a, a very, uh, compelling aspect, um, to all of this. And again, it, it speaks to how, even when you've been completely dehumanized and turned into essentially a killing machine, how deep down you know that what you're doing is, is wrong. Um, and of course, I'm sure even many of the um, the members who tampered with his sniper rifle and uh, you know fired the warning shots, well, that in itself is admirable. I'm, I'm sure they're just as guilty of either enabling Gallagher or carrying out particularly heinous actions himself. But nonetheless... Uh, it is interesting to show this uh, this this sliding scale of immorality that's even more prevalent in special <laughs> operations as opposed to the military writ large. That's right. And so what I hope whatever 
whatever happens to him, the the families of the the people he murdered, especially that that old man, that young girl, will receive some kind of justice, some kind of compensation. But um, I wouldn't wouldn't be expecting that to happen. Your soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guardmen are better educated than before, are better informed, and understand what the war is all about. On this edition of uh, Radical Military History, uh, Mike, you have a very compelling figure uh, to share with us. I thought it'd be a good idea if we continued with our theme of last episode uh, of talking about um, radical military history in relation to what's going on at the border. You know, as our listeners know, our last podcast was around Trump's border deployment, which was uh, what some people called a pre-midterm election stunt. But here it is after the midterm elections, weeks after, uh, the troops are still at the border. They're still performing border operations. In fact, all of the incidents of soldiers putting up all the Constantino wire, razor wire, um, and it being called, oh, this is just for show. Uh, at least one uh, migrant crossing the border got himself completely tangled up in the Constantino wire and was was arrested. Um, so uh, it's not for show at all. It actually is impacting people who are who are trying to come here for asylum. And the border uh, buildup is still preventing the asylum seekers from entering the country. We know that Trump made an announcement saying that all of the people trying to enter who are now at the U.S. border. They're at the legal ports of entry, the, the migrant caravan. Um, and Trump said he will not accept any asylum applications, which is illegal because any person, every immigrant has the right to claim political asylum uh, if they just have to fill out an application and prove that there, there's a danger to their life if they go home. Um, so Trump said, no, I'm not taking any asylum applications. Of course, that was struck down by a court because it is illegal to do that. Uh, and of course, just plain racist. And so Trump came back and said, okay, well, if you're going to make them come in, they have to pay a fee for each of their applications. Of course, the migrants in the migrant caravan weren't carrying large sums of cash to be able to pay a fee. So he's trying different things to try to prevent uh, the caravan from reaching here. So anyways, the troops are still on the border. The migrants are still on the border seeking political asylum. We saw that Border Patrol actually fired tear gas at migrants on the border, choking many small children and babies. As we covered in the last episode, uh, the reason that so many are fleeing from these countries is be exactly because of U.S. policy, what the United States has done to Central America, and that over the years there have been people in the military and veterans who have took a stand against it. One was an army chaplain by the name of Major Charles Litke, who served a combat tour in Vietnam in 1967. Uh, Litke was one of three chaplains in the entire Vietnam War to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor. And in fact, he was the only chaplain in the Vietnam War to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor, not posthumously, alive. The other two chaplains who received uh, CSMs were, were killed in action. And just so people know, um, if you don't know much about, if you're not a veteran, you know that the receiving a Medal of Honor is pretty difficult. You have to save the lives of a lot of people either, and it has to be a great risk to your own life. And most people receive Medal of Honors after they're, after they're killed uh, because you, it, it requires so much of a personal sacrifice uh, to be able to get one. But what Mr. Litke did, it was his first ever experience in combat. He had been in Vietnam for some time and the first firefight uh, he was involved in was just a complete massacre of his own unit. And he, without a helmet, without a flak vest, 
without a weapon, because as we know, chaplains do not carry weapons uh, in combat zones. Uh, he ran over and over again, back and forth, into enemy fire, through landmines, through mortars, and rescued 23 different soldiers who were wounded on the battlefield. And he was wounded himself. He was full of shrapnel from explosions. Uh, wounded, I think, more than once uh, while going back and forth to save people. And even um, saving people who were dying and, and making sure to give them, as a chaplain, give them their last rites uh, as they were dying on the battlefield. So for this, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor. So uh, following uh, his time uh, in the military in Vietnam, uh, he actually left the priesthood in 1975. And then in 1983, interestingly enough, he married a former nun, uh, Judy Balch, who actually helped um, encourage him uh, to pursue more uh, active me uh, measures of social justice. In recent episodes, uh, we've named the School of the Americas, now known as the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, otherwise known as WINSEC at Fort Benning, Georgia. And that was one of the, um, the major institutions that uh, Litke protested with uh, great vehemence. Of note, then, in 1986, uh, Litke actually uh, renounced his Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, he put it in an envelope addressed to uh, then-President Ronald Reagan at the time and left it at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in uh, D.C. Uh, not only that, though, he actually renounced the lifetime tax-free monthly pension that comes uh, with the Congressional Medal of Honor, which at the time uh, was about $600, but today would total about $1,300 uh, uh, per month, which is quite remarkable. Uh, you know, that's if you would calculate how much money that would, you know, add up to over the, the course of an average human lifespan. I mean, it, it, not only did he throw away the the symbol uh, of, uh, of his military service that was honored by a military which he came to renounce and despise, but he also threw away the, the spoils uh, of that military service uh, and accolade. It's also worth noting that in doing this, Charles Litke became the only recipient uh, to have renounced uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor in history. That's right. And he did this in in protest of Reagan's uh, contra war in, in Central America. I mean, the reason that so many refugees are fleeing from Central America is because of the legacy of Reagan's contra war. And this uh, veteran, this Vietnam veteran gave up the highest award that can be given to any service member for valor gave it up and gave up the benefits in protest of what the United States was doing in Central America, the, the effects of which we're seeing today. Litke also served two different prison terms in federal prison for protesting the dirty wars in Latin America. Um, and in 2002 and in 2003, leading up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, he actually went to Baghdad as one of these, um, you know, the people went in, in anticipation of the U.S. bombing, uh, in some ways as human shields to say that large numbers of Americans went to Baghdad, which of course was going to be bombed on the eve of the U.S. bombing. So also a very, um, you know, he was, he was putting his life on the line throughout his entire life. He died last year. Actually, he died in uh, January 2017 at age 85. But, you know, I just I think that it's uh, important for for soldiers today to hear to hear him and to know about him, because, you know, as as we know, it's no small thing to get a Medal of Honor. It's uh, something that for your entire life 
you have and are are revered for. If you you know walk onto a military base with it, you are saluted no matter what your rank because people are saluting the medal because it's held in such high esteem. But to him, what was the U.S. was doing in Latin in Latin America and Central America? Uh, was so grotesque and so evil that he wanted nothing to do with it. And so to take out this episode, I actually wanted to uh, play an interview that he did in 2004 with Democracy Now!, explaining why he did what he did. Uh, And I think it's important for all soldiers to hear um, as they think about their role uh, now enforcing the border and enforcing the blockade against refugees that were created by the very policies he was protesting. Uh, As far as I'm concerned... um President Reagan was um, in in the same category uh, with the man we have in there now. He was responsible. He was an accomplice to the death of, of thousands, literally thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and um, the public, um, I don't think, is much aware of this now. You know, this is all this is all part of history and. Uh, we have a. We seem to have a very short memory for the atrocities committed by by people we hold in high esteem. Anyway, I became uh, aware of the fact that um, what was going on in Central America uh, during during the 80s, and um, President Reagan uh, was was right in there, and he was uh, in great great support of of the uh, military in El Salvador, which is one of the most brutal militaries in history, and also the the Contras in in Central America, or rather in in Nicaragua. Uh, But uh, I I went to uh, Central America several times. I went with a group of of Vietnam veterans uh, to El Salvador and Nicaragua and Honduras, and I came back uh, with a changed mind, uh, and it was a it was a beginning of a process of of metamorphosis for me to discover what our government has been involved in over the years, and uh, and so um, as a result of of my visit to um, El Salvador and Nicaragua, I decided that I no longer wanted uh, a medal associated with the government. That would be uh, behind such things by way of policy. Uh, also, I wanted to draw attention to what we were doing uh, in uh, Central America in the name of freedom and democracy. And when President Reagan said, I am a Contra too, I said that he insulted every American patriot when he referred to these killers of children, old men, and women. Freedom fighters, comparable to the founding fathers of our country. That to me, that's an obscenity. So I just said, you know, in the name of freedom and national security and national interests and anti-communism, you have tried to justify crimes against humanity of the most heinous sort. You made a global bully of the United States. You would not dare to do that to countries capable of defending themselves. What you have done to tiny nations like El Salvador and Nicaragua and Honduras. So uh, I, you know, wrote just a one-page letter, uh, laid it at the apex of the Vietnam uh, Wall, where uh, the names of the victims of that war uh, and the lies of that war are etched in black marble, 
And I felt that that was an appropriate place to leave it because um, the the soldiers of, of, of Vietnam, those who those who died, those who were wounded, were victims of lies of that area, just as these poor kids now in Iraq are victims of the lies of this administration. So uh, I it was. Um, a poignant moment for me because I was very proud of the fact to have received that particular uh, award. So, but I, I just I just felt that uh, that was all I could take at that particular time. And I finally ended the the letter to uh, President Reagan with this short paragraph. I said, "I pray for your conversion, your conversion, Mr. President." Some morning I hope you wake up and hear the cry of the poor riding on a southwest wind from Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. They're crying, stop killing us. And it's still going on. And that's the really sad thing. And so, as far as President uh, Reagan is concerned, uh, <laughs> that's my eulogy for him. Um, I ha- all I can say is, uh, you know, may God have mercy on him. Uh, but it's not for it's not for me to judge, but um, it is for me, and I think it is for every American uh, to be aware of what's being done in our name around the world. Uh, and it was not just then; it's been going on ever since then. And this this mess in in uh, in Iraq is to me it's far worse than Vietnam. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and I am in deep sympathy with all of those young men who are over there now doing what they think is their patriotic duty. I think it is more the patriotic duty of citizens of this country to stand up uh, and say uh, that this is wrong, that this is immoral. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyes left pod at gmail.com. Nice left.